0: CHAPTER 2 COCKSUCKERS AND COPYCATS One hallmark of my campaign to get Tattoo the Earth off the ground right from the onset was that anyone I pitched the idea to or anyone who saw the pitch book gave me the best contacts they had. Many times they would call the person themselves and put them right on the phone to talk to me. People immediately believed in the idea and in my ability to pull it off and wanted to do everything they could to help me make it real. Sean was the first one. He loved the pitch book when I next saw him and told me he'd been thinking about nothing else since our night of drunken inspiration. He also said that our first stop had to be with Lyle Tuttle, one of the tattoo artists I'd learned about in Modern Primitives, the book my Berkeley friends had given me. Lyle had been one of Sean's mentors, and Sean was confident he would want to be involved. There was a tattoo convention the following week in Richmond, Virginia, that Lyle would be attending, so we booked some flights and planned our meeting with him. Lyle Tuttle was 14 in 1946 when he saw the troops return from World War II, and seeing their tattoos inspired him to get one himself, a heart with mother tattooed on his arm. Lyle once said, show me a man with a tattoo, and I'll show you an interesting past and his past was the stuff of legend. A few years after getting that first tattoo, he was tattooing professionally and traveled the world to learn all he could about all the different styles of tattooing. Lyle opened up his first shop in San Francisco in 1960 and made it his life's work to get tattooing out of the back alleys and into mainstream acceptance. Though Lyle may have been inspired by the World War II vets coming home, their wives and girlfriends were less appreciative and tattooing would have disappeared entirely after the war, if not for biker gangs in California, New York, and Europe. The artistry and technology kept evolving to greater levels in the 1960s and 70s, but tattooing as a business and industry had not progressed much since the biker gangs of 1950s. Lyle helped change that. He tattooed the likes of Janis Joplin, Joan Baez, Henry Fonda, and Cher. He did the famous tattoo on her ass cheek, and he was featured on a cover of Rolling Stone. There was still a shop in Lyle's name in San Francisco, but by the time I met him, he was done tattooing, except occasionally when he'd get a large fee to tattoo his signature on someone and devoted his energy toward building his brand. He spent most of his time traveling to tattoo conventions, doing clinics, selling his custom tattoo machines and flash, and enjoying his status as the grandfather of modern tattooing. The Richmond Convention was held in the nondescript ballroom of a cheap hotel that was even grimmer than the convention hall in New Orleans. We walked the convention floor, and just like in New Orleans, Sean knew everyone, and everyone respected him. Other tattoo artists and fans were surprised to see him there, and not tattooing, and were intrigued when he told them we were there to meet Lyle. I watched one of the tattoo contests with categories like Best Black and Gray, Best Sleeve Color, Best Back Piece, Best Portrait, etc. The tattoos were judged on their artwork and craft, not on the attractiveness of the body they were on, and that was a nice part of tattoo conventions. Anyone with a great tattoo could win a contest. A short time later, the legend was sitting in front of me. He was almost 70, his girlfriend was 30-ish, and he was nursing a vodka and grapefruit juice. He wore tan pants and had his shirt off. The upper part of his bodysuit was incredible, though his arms were so tattooed it was difficult to distinguish what was what. His chest was a mix of tribal and modern tattooing that stopped at his neck along the line of a t-shirt. He had nothing on his neck or hands. He could wear a suit and tie and look like a retired insurance salesman. With his shirt off in a shitty hotel room in Richmond, he looked like a fucking pirate. Lyle listened patiently while I told him about the idea, barely looking at the pitch book as he flipped through it. Other than an occasional snort, he looked at me with the excitement of a bored grandpa, who is missing discount frozen yogurt night at the mall on account of me. I told him about my background, my work in music, my recent corporate work, and how much tattoos meant to me. I also told him about my first tattoo and my seeing his picture in modern primitives. I was naked compared to Lyle and Sean, and I got the sense Lyle thought I was a poser, someone who got a few tattoos and saw a way to make money. I could tell he was irritated right from the get-go. I see this festival like a woodstock for the body art generation, I told him. The connection between the tattoo artists, bands, and fans is powerful. Forged in blood, ink, and music. That's one part. I also want to tie in museums and academia and mainstream sponsors to put tattooing in the forefront. Sean told him some of the artists we would want to have involved and how we would treat the artists like a band, and on the same level as the music. We would take tattooing out of hotel ballrooms and put it right in the middle of a massive cultural event. This is a natural continuation of the work you've been doing your entire life, I told him, and we want you to be a part of it. I'd been talking too long, verbally dancing for my life, and finally paused to light a joint and gauge his reaction. He stared at the pitch book for a while. You are completely full of shit, he bellowed. You think you'll get tattooists to work together? To put aside their egos for something created by an outsider? Well, I am full of shit. I shot back. I think you need to be full of shit to pull something like this off. And yes, I think we can unite the tattoo artists to work together with us. Tattoo artists are all cocksuckers and copycats, he barked at me. And that will never change. I could tell we were done, and Sean and I wrapped it up. We were prepared to give Lyle a piece of the tour if he joined us, but instead I gave him an ounce of some amazing pot as a tribute and thanked him for his time. Sean had told me that tattoo artists were a paranoid and wary group, but I hadn't been fully prepared for a snootful of it on my first meeting. I know Sean was disappointed by the meeting too. He said he thought Lyle would come around once it all came together and we had bands attached. But Lyle was right. I had approached him too soon, before I knew what I was talking about. His skepticism did not deter me, but made clear that I needed to hone my narrative and prioritize the music part of the project. Sean was dejected when we got back to New York, so I gave him $5,000 as a show of confidence that he was my key guy. Sean and I were in total sync, and I didn't want him wavering. I dropped almost $30,000 in the first weeks after having the idea. I put a lawyer on retainer to put together contracts, including one for Sean, and hired another law firm to do trademarking. I bought a mid-length black leather Calvin Klein jacket like the one De Niro wore in Mean Streets, a new laptop and cell phone, a pound of some mind-blowing pot, all the things I would need to travel the world in pursuit of my goal. I decided to stay at the plaza when I was in New York, which was expensive at first, but became more reasonable over the months as I got to know the management. My thought was that I had a million-dollar idea and needed to look like someone who could pull it off. I never once said I was going to put the money up for the tour. That would cost millions, and I didn't have that. But I knew that if I got the right band, promoter, celebrity, or whatever, that the money would follow. I had enough money to get the money I would need. My focus was on getting a band attached, or some other entity that would make a deal attractive to investors. J.P. Morgan told people he wouldn't lend them money, but he would walk down the street with them, and that's what I was searching for. Though my focus switched to the music side, Sean and I did go to Berlin a few weeks later for another tattoo convention. Sean said European conventions were much better than the ones in the U.S. and that I should experience a good one. Plus, Bernie Luther would be there and Bernie was one of the artists Sean wanted to recruit for Tattoo the Earth. He also wanted Bernie to start a tribal sleeve for me. Bernie was from Austria and was part of a new wave of artists from Europe, including Philip Liu and Tintin, that had taken Tattoo to another level. Bernie's freehand artistry, use of color, and fusing multiple styles into a single tattoo, like Japanese, tribal, and traditional tattoos juxtaposed on the skin so the styles don't clash but become something unique, had placed him at the top of the tattoo world. Going to hundreds of conventions on five continents had earned him the nickname Traveling Bernie, and Sean said a tattoo tour wouldn't be worth shit without Bernie on it. Sean was right about the Berlin Convention. It was far and away better than the ones I'd seen in the U.S. It was in an expo hall with many levels, and the quality and diversity of the vendors was at a whole other level. Some of the tattoo artists hailed from Japan and Borneo. There were bands playing, but in other parts of the complex, so the sound wasn't overwhelming. Hash smoke hung in the air, and the whole vibe was welcoming and conducive to lingering and exploring. Sean got some hand tattooing done on his knuckles. The tattooist used a small hammer and a stick with needles attached to it, and he would gently tap the stick into the skin to deposit the ink. The guy who did Sean's knuckles wanted to do mine, but I declined. I wanted to be able to wear a long-sleeved shirt or suit and not be a tattooed person. Plus, I was certain I would stand in front of a judge again in my life, and I didn't want neck or hand tattoos influencing someone's impression of me. But the idea of hand tattooing intrigued me, and a few weeks later I got the Japanese symbol for Sparrow, Betsy's last name, hand poked into my arm by a tattooist using a stick with needles attached. It was actually less painful than getting tattooed by machine and quieter, and I wanted more of it. We met Bernie on the convention floor. He shared Lyle Tuttle's distrust of outsiders, but he was warmer and more expansive. Bernie was a skater kid who grew up on the streets of Vienna and London. He had long, unwashed brown hair and looked like a hippie. Bernie's shop was located in Vienna, but he traveled constantly to the farthest reaches of the planet. Bernie could fashion a bong out of anything, an old can, just about any piece of fruit, or the earth itself. He'd once stopped on the side of a deserted highway and, using some water, made a bong in the dirt, like a sandcastle, and lied down next to it with a rolled-up bill to get a hit of some hash. He told us he'd had a fire at his house in Molly, got his girlfriend and kid out safely, then ran back in to see what he could save. The house was engulfed, and he had no time. He thought about grabbing the $10,000 he had in cash, or his tattoo designs, but decided to save his favorite pair of boots instead. They were cool boots, brown and beaten, the laces barely holding them together. I trusted Sean's judgment, and I gave Bernie my left arm without conditions. We got high all night while Bernie drew a tribal design on my arm with a big pen. The design incorporated a mix of tribal styles, with geometric swirls and shapes that used open skin space to accentuate the design. In keeping with the black and white theme of the tribal pieces Sean did on me, Bernie used black, grey, and white ink, and then outlined the entire piece, filling in enough so it looked finished enough until I could see him the next time. He tattooed me right up until I had to leave for the airport. I hadn't slept for two days by then, and I was bleeding, sore and catatonic on the flight home. Bernie had started an epic tattoo and we had connected, but I could see that Lyle Tuttle was right. It was going to be hard to deal with tattoo artists. They were not interested in being handled or cajoled and would push back on anyone who tried. After our tattoo adventures in Richmond and Berlin, I switched gears and concentrated on the music for the tour. Through some business contacts, I was introduced to two lawyers. It's always helpful to start with lawyers. They know everyone, and they get off on making connections. The first one, a mildly successful entertainment attorney who was then producing a documentary on the Yiddish language called Our Maloshen, liked the idea and introduced me to his best contact, Don Kirshner. The two of us met for drinks at the Oak Bar in the plaza, and it was a mindfuck sitting across from him. In the 1950s and 1960s, Don Kirshner had been a key figure at the Brill Building Songwriting Club. He was the mastermind behind the Monkees and their TV show. In the 1970s, there were only a few places on TV to see live rock music, and Don Kirshner's rock concert was one of them. I let him know how much the show meant to me as a teenager. Scott, he told me with his distinctive New York accent, Tattoo the Earth isn't just an idea for a concert. You're talking about a whole industry here, he smiled as he looked through the pitch book. I absolutely love this, he said, and offered to help in any way he could, though the meeting ultimately went nowhere. Look at the big picture, Scott, he told me several times. It's a whole industry. I'd already envisioned spin-off tattoo in retail shops, but after I met with him, I took it further, adding additional ideas to the pitch book to show the breadth and depth of the idea. I came up with an idea for a cartoon series called That Squad, Tattooed Heroes Against Tyranny, about a group of inked superheroes whose tattoos come to life and help them fight evil in the universe. One character was a Jewish accountant whose portrait of his mother came to life and annoyed enemies into submission. I came up with a magazine called Ink Gun, a website called Tat Chat into plexiglass tattoo booth with giant Lego-like modules called FestiPod that I designed to travel on the road. I made a miniature prototype in my basement using a Barbie doll to model as the tattoo artist. The second music business lawyer, Stuart Silfin, was infamous for his involvement in Woodstock and for his industry connections. I had been having people sign non-disclosure agreements before I told them about the idea, and he laughed out loud when I said that. ''No one is gonna steal this,'' he told me. ''It will be hard to pull this off. No one else is thinking about this right now, and even if they were, it doesn't matter. Talk to anyone who will listen. Anytime, anywhere.'' He chuckled as he leafed through the pitch book and kept saying how clever he thought it was. ''Irving would love this,'' he said a few times and offered to make a call on my behalf. Irving was Irving Azoff, who was at the time and still is one of the most powerful people in music. He managed the Eagles and at various times in his career was an agent, owned a record company and a music merchandising company, produced movies, ran Ticketmaster, and also ran Live Nation, the biggest concert promoter in the world. A few days later, I was on the phone with Azoff. He got the concept and wanted to hear more. A few weeks later, I was in Los Angeles to meet with him. I was feeling fantastic. The driver who picked me up at the airport listened to my pitch, anyone, anytime, anywhere, right? And told me how rich I was going to be. He said he saw lightning bolts in my eyes. As we drove, I saw a billboard for the new Rolling Stones live album, No Security. And it featured a woman covered in Sean's tattoos. A cosmic message from Sean, I thought. And I asked the car to stop at Tower Records so I could buy the CD. I stayed in a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, put the stone CD and the player in the room, got stoned, made some calls, and got psyched up for the meeting with Azoff. By the time the last song, Out of Control, came on, volume on high, I was overcome with emotions, just as I had been the night I'd first thought of Tattoo the Earth. I was sobbing, singing, dancing, and genuflecting. Anyone who saw me and didn't know I was an atheist might have thought I was experiencing a religious conversion. I was overwhelmed with waves of gratitude, and I played the song over and over again, cranking it louder each time. A similar thing had happened a few weeks earlier where I had to pull the car off the road while listening to a Who song. Music seemed to be the trigger. And though music always had a powerful effect on me, I'd never felt like this, even during my fun hard drug-using days. I was a blubbering mess, but I was completely sure of my place on the planet. My feet were planted. I was grateful. All the different parts of me were coalescing. The freak. The suit. The junkie. The carny. The writer. All of it. It did occur to me that I could be having a psychotic break of some kind. I'd read an article about the top life stressors a person can experience and I'd experienced almost all of them in the previous two years. I'd suffered from depression my whole life. I see now it was the underlying foundation of my addiction, but it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I found a shrink who broke it down for me. He said I had multiple levels of depression. I had a low-grade depression since childhood that was like a mild hum constantly on in the background. I had an existential depression and an Eastern European darkness that formed my sensibility. This depression I liked. And lastly, I had a cyclical depression that affected me a few times a year and could lay me low for weeks on end. The last type was the type that could fuck up my life, even if I took medication. I had always been moody and had a manic kind of energy. I was a speed freak when I was a teenager, but this type of manic state was something new. It did occur to me I could just finally be cracking up, but then I thought, fuck it. I could be losing it, but I was inspired. I was inspiring other people of note and substance, and no one was treating me like I was nuts. By the time I hit Azov's office, though, I wasn't feeling it anymore. I was used to depression switching on and off, but I'd never gone from such a high to such a low so quickly. I could tell I wasn't connecting with him. I could remember every detail of the meeting, the surprising plainness of his waiting area, the memorabilia in his office, what he was wearing, and the way I was sunk into his chair but barely a word of our conversation. He got someone on the phone to inquire about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, then told me they weren't a functioning band at the time, which turned out to be false. I sat there feeling like a phony. It occurred to me that I was fucking chum. I hadn't put enough blood and guts into the project, and I wasn't at a level in the music business where I could just throw an idea out there and have it stick. I was an outsider, just like with tattooing, and I sensed the same wariness and defensiveness. Azov said to give him some time to think about it. Betsy and I returned to LA a few weeks later, but Azov couldn't meet with me. He did put me in touch with a top concert promoter, Concerts West, but they'd had a bad experience with tattooing at previous events and took a hard pass. After some promising meetings, I was back at the beginning, but I had learned a ton and realized I had to change the format. My original idea was for a three-day festival like Woodstock, But a marketing research company I hired told me that those types of multi-day festivals were going out of style. Despite the success of the Lollapalooza Festival, three-day festivals were too risky because people were sleeping over, which is always dangerous. Riots broke out at Woodstock 1999, and weather could ruin the whole thing. Tours were safer because you had multiple shows to overcome the bad ones but it was going to be difficult to get a major band to commit to 30 or 40 shows with an unproven concept because if the concept failed, the band's brand would get dragged down with it. The owner of the marketing company told me that one in a hundred ideas like mine ever become a reality, and he didn't think mine was the one. You just wait and see, I told him. My main takeaway from the first few months hawking tattooed the Earth was that everyone had flipped over the concept and my pitch for the project was getting better. My utter belief in the idea gave it authenticity, and it was apparent to all I met with that I was serious and driven. Within weeks of having the idea, tattoo the Earth had gotten me in front of Lyle Tuttle, Irving Azoff, and that was not nothing. Plus, I now had a tattoo sleeve from Bernie Luther that made me feel invincible. There was someone or something out there that was going to make it happen, and now I knew I had the ability to get the people who could help me find the thing that would light the rocket. That was positive. I could build off that and retreated to Massachusetts to regroup.